So, David. Yes, Michelle. Look, now, Jeremy was such a good chat. Yes, we've had him in a box with a, a mask over his head. I love that. Yep. Not so much for him. But All diplomats are used to that. That's how yep. they train. Yes. So I thought, you know, we'd put him on pause and then we'd unpause him and we'd discuss a little bit more about diplomats. Well, there's some. Th- there was that big diplomatic review that we never got around to last week. Let's no. get onto it now. Okay, let's do it. Okay. You're listening to I Spied, the government review of Australian intelligence. Two. It's not that kind of review. Hello and welcome to I Spy. My name is Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan and we've had Jeremy. Sitting in his office for a week. Yeah, we put him on pause and we did send some food though. I think he's okay. Yeah, well, tin of spaghetti and a bit of toast. So Jeremy Dicker is a former diplomat and we kind of touched a little bit on the G7, the quad and kind of Biden Biden cancelling and all of that. But what we really want to talk about is, A, I want to talk about your time in the United States Mm -hmm. and also... There was a review, a diplomatic review. They did. That's review R E V I E W, not R E V U E, which you generally get at an <laughs> ASEAN meeting where everyone gets up and does karaoke. Don't, don't all the foreign ministers have to do karaoke? There's a very famous one of, of Alexander Downer doing karaoke, and it was really bad. Was that when he was in his fishnets? No, 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 no. That yeah. was actually that. The funny thing about the fishnet stockings, and I, the, he must really hate that media advisor mm. because he, he was wearing the fishnet stocking because he was in Adelaide. That's his electorate. Well, That uh, doesn't explain why he was wearing the fishnet stocking. Rocky Horror was opening okay. in Adelaide and they were getting famous people in Adelaide to do it and he was the only one that it stuck to. No one else cared about it. I know, but else. I also just think he wanted to. But also, there's not that many famous people <laughs> in Adelaide, really. <laughs> Except our good friend Andrew P Street. I hope everything's going well. Andy. Yes. Um, so, Jeremy, briefly give us an overview of your time working in the United States in the capacity that you did. Yeah, that was my that was my third and final posting, and and you were I, like, I, I'm I, out now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I had a dream run at the. I it, I felt lucky to ever get a job there, and you know, felt lucky every step of the way I was there. So yeah, um, it, it was really just you know, reaching a certain age, got little kids, and another opportunity came up. I was excited about, but um, I mean, the the US posting in particular, I I arrived just shortly after. Trump had taken office, mm-hmm. so early 2017. And, I mean, it was a heck of a time to be in the US. Um, I think, you know, Trump's election had caught a lot of people by surprise, but not everyone by surprise. I think one person that felt like it was a real possibility and who was preparing for that possibility was Australia's then ambassador at the time, Joe Hockey. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, well, I mean, like recognises like. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> Sorry, no that's comment is no fine. Comment. You're allowed to say no comment. We accept it. <laughs> so Joe was was the ambassador at the time, and and he had he had picked it, and I think that was to Australia's advantage mm. because like many other countries were just buying what what was um, what everyone was assuming, which was that Clinton was going to win. Um, so that meant you know we were in a pretty good position when when Trump did win, um, or he had connections in. In with his team and whatnot, but I guess I think foreign services all around the world after Trump won um, were scrambling. And was, yeah, and it wasn't just Trump; like Brexit happened um, around the same time as well. Yeah, there was there was stuff happening all around the world that just felt like things were were less predictable. Things were moving more quickly. 
And I think a lot of foreign services, a lot of diplomatic services, including our own, probably felt like things needed to change to try and um, stay ahead of all this. So, I mean, for us in the US, Joe Hockey, as, as ambassador, and he, he was big on getting out of DC, getting out of the main coastal capital cities and just crossing the country, crisscrossing the country and getting to know people, getting to know folks and understand what was happening, what were the forces that were driving this place, this you know most powerful nation in the world. And so that impacted me as well. I mean, I was, um, I was working out at the Australian consulate in Los Angeles, which is a an amazing city. There are far worse places you could serve your country than in, in Los Angeles, yeah, California. Yeah, I was thinking maybe New York, but I also thought, I reckon you were in Los Angeles. It just felt that, <laughs> that it, That's exactly where I was. And so, you know, I got out and about and went not only across California, but into neighboring states as well, which we sort of covered from LA. Mm. Um, one of the neighboring states was Nevada, home to Las Vegas. Mm. And so I went to Vegas a couple of times um, for work purposes. One of those times I went to um, observe a Trump rally. And that's yeah. that's not unusual. Like foreign diplomats are always going to political events because we're invited yeah. um, to try and understand that, you know, the positions of different candidates and what it might mean for relations with that country. But still, when you say I went to a Trump rally in Vegas, that that is, you know, yeah. not not what you expect to do in, in, in your job, but it's something I did do. And it was pretty remarkable, uh, a pretty remarkable experience. But I think it's um, important and like even when we talk about the the climate of media and, and stuff like that, I think it's important, particularly with media, that people, you know, interact or consume media that they don't agree with. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really important. But in the same way that I think it's important that instead of having kind of a tunnel view of something, you need to go and experience it and you need to get kind of like the feels from the floor. And I think that was one of Joe Hockey's strengths, you know, his likability and his ability to kind of like be a man of the people as well in a certain certain regard. You know, that kind of Australianism came out in him, which I think posts like that probably were lacking. Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is when, when you're working at a place like, DFAT, you, I mean, you have to go beyond the politics. You have to, like, everywhere I went, I had to shake hands with people that I probably would not have wanted to shake hands with, you know, if it wasn't my job. But that, that's your job. You're there representing your country and it's an honor to do so. And that that means sometimes you got to do things that are in the national interest. Mm. you got to go places in the national interest. And I think re- really it means going beyond the politics as mm. much as you possibly can and trying to understand what's driving it. Why are people voting for this guy? Why are people voting against this guy? And if you don't understand that, it's to the detriment of you and your work and, and the country. So, yeah, I, I, as a byproduct, though, again, I think it, I mean, you can't do 14 years in the foreign service having these kinds of experiences and not have it shape you as a person, as a citizen, as a voter. And I, yeah. I, I'm sure, I'm sure it has me. I think, you know, I sort of um, mentioned in last week's episode about seeing the humanity on the other side and, and I, I just, yeah, even even when there's a political movement that we find or we might find objectionable, I still think it's incumbent on all of us, beneficial all of us to at least try and understand it. Yes. Um, yeah. Some have some empathy, um, not sympathy, empathy for mm. for why folks might might want to vote some way. And even when you're working for DFAT or any foreign service, you've got to step it up a level and go beyond politics, the geopolitics, and, and we talk about having geostrategic empathy yeah. like why why is this country acting the way it is why is this world leader so paranoid or so obsessed with this that and the other you know, we're paid to think that way and and go beyond the immediate headlines um and think really clearly um and that sometimes means yeah 
having awkward conversations and go to kind of weird places. Sounds very, very similar to my experience in the intelligence world in that you you could have a, a political opinion. That doesn't mean you get to you, you can't let that influence what you're doing. You've got to you've got to remove your confirmation bias. So yeah. you can actually function as an, an analyst or as an uh, you know field operative. You can't do that without going right. My politics doesn't count. I mean, I found it very interesting when I left, and people found out they were like, "Oh, you must be very conservative." Uh, Michelle, am no. I conservative? No, 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 no. He's so he's she so thinks not. I'm bullshit, and I'm actually not. But <laughs> <He's> so bullshit. <laughs> You know what? The workers are going to kill you for yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> no, but, you know, it's very interesting, and that's also part of the reason why, you know, the writing wasn't immediately on the wall about Trump yeah. winning because a lot of people were afraid. The political climate was as such that they were afraid to say that they support him because mm. um, they were afraid to be shouted down or, you know, pigeonholed as well because we've kind of lost that ability to have nuance and debate around kind of these big real issues as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the guy himself didn't exactly lend no. himself to the nuance or no. the base. No. Even um, when he became president, he didn't really lend himself <laughs> to credibility whatsoever. Uh, That's what's yeah. really fascinating about it. Yes. And he's still managing to survive now. So let's crack into uh, there was recently a review about Australia's diplomatic network yep. and kind of what came out of it were some pretty interesting things. And last step, you kind of said something around how the climate has changed in terms of diplomats and what is needed. And that was one of the things that came out of the review that the climate has in, in fact changed and big changes need to happen for it to kind of move forward and that there's some serious gaps. What do you think... Did you read? I'm assuming you read the review, but what did you think of a lot of the points that were made in there? And would you agree with a lot of that? Yeah, I mean, I read media reports about the review, but I didn't know if the review itself has been made public. I've been yet. looking like, for it, and it's it's not. It's all abstract or extract. It's not the full. Yeah. Review if yet. anyone's going to find the full review and actually sit down and read it, it's this guy right here. Hey, um, he has nothing else to do with his life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yes, we are going off reports of what is in the review. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I was still at DFAT when when the secretary, the head of DFAT, Jams, watched it. Um, in fact. There were a couple of similar, broadly similar reviews into DFAT through my 14 years there. So, I mean, part of me feels like here we go again. Yeah. Um, another review that might achieve nothing. I really hope that's not the case. I think, you know, a new head of DFAT, a relatively new government, that is an opportunity to try and make some changes that I think DFAT probably needs. But the reality is, you know, when you work for DFAT, you get to deal with diplomats from all around the world. Um, in my case, not only did I get to deal with diplomats from all around the world, I actually did a posting where I worked inside another country's foreign service. I was wow. in the Peruvian. Oh, so you seconded across? Yeah, which is a really unusual experience, but one I'll never forget. I mean, it's total career highlight for me to do mm-hmm. that. But I mean, one of the things from that experience, which just kind of gelled with all the conversations I've had with foreign diplomats all around the world, we're all, every foreign service is kind of struggling in, in some pretty similar ways. I think the concept of a, of a foreign service, of a diplomatic service, it was born hundreds of years ago when, when we never really knew what was happening on the other side of the world yeah. because you know, it would take weeks or months to get a message from one coin to the other. And so you know, we had to have these networks of trusted representatives that could act on our behalf and keep us posted on what was going on. But you know, a lot of that original raison d'etre for having a foreign service 
has sort of been eroded by the advent of instantaneous global communication, right? And you no longer necessarily need to rely on your diplomats in a foreign country to know what's going on there because, you know, there, there's very likely to be some amazing foreign correspondent from I don't know, the Financial Times or or one of your one of your colleagues, Michelle, or whoever, yep. um, who, who will be like all across that issue and will have already published a news story about it before you even hit send on your cable back to Canada. Yeah. That's not to say that, therefore, cables, um, which is like a fancy term for reports um, that we use in DMIT and our foreign industry, it's not to say that they are obsolete. It's just more to say that there has had to be a pretty serious rethink about what role they play, mm. um, the way they disseminate information around to play network. But, yeah, so I think every foreign ministry is kind of wrestling with it. I, I think every foreign ministry that I've dealt with complains that there's just such an aversion to risk that there's so much bureaucracy, yeah. it can just be painful yep. to just get the most meal sheen done, to get approval, to send the most mundane email or tweet or whatever. It can, it can really be painful. I think part of that is is inevitable because you're dealing with matters, not all the time, sometimes you're dealing with things that matter and the stakes are high. And so you need a lot of eyes on on something um, before you hit send on it. You need, you need to make sure that decision is bulletproof before you action it. So I think it, it, I think it's you know, always healthy to have a, a little that a little bit of that slow bureaucratic inertia around the process of foreign policy. But but I suspect a lot of my former colleagues and diplomats around the world will probably agree that it goes too far a lot of the time. Once the inertia it's, becomes morass, then you're in, uh, you're, yeah. in, you're in trouble. Well said, well said, David. It, it, so yeah, it can be it can be <laughs> it can be pretty painful when you find yourself in that morass and. It can be tough on morale. It can be tough on effectiveness. And I think over the years, you know, different governments in Australia have cut DFAT's budget. Mm. It's seen its influence eroded in Canberra. Um, that's led to, you know, arguably a bit of impotence abroad in terms of what we can do and where we can shape events. How um, much of that reduction of influence has been the rise of PM and C? Prime Minister and Cabinet has now become sort of like the premier, which makes sense in a way, department and policy influencer. But how much of that is also been the use of back channels? Say instead of going through foreign affairs, they're going through something like a business associate, that you know, like a, a business contact that is associated with their party or associated with the government in some sort of way. Uh, it's just it, for me, I find it fascinating. The, the the standout thing for me was we have diplomatic missions that should have a certain number of like should have three staff in it, and there's only one. And that, yeah. how much of that is an insult to the host country that you can't even care to have enough people in your mission? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've touched on one of the recommendations from the review there, David, which was we shouldn't have any diplomatic missions with, with less than three people. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I, I've never been in a mission with just one person, but I was. I've seen missions where there's three, and even that is stretched pretty thin. Oh, like, yeah. It, even in LA, where where we're a pretty small team, but there were multiple times where I like hadn't. A meeting or some event I had to go to and have to pull out at the last minute because there's been some random thing happening in the office. You did a Biden. So We're calling that, if you pull out of anything from now on, it's called doing a Biden. I'm, <laughs> I'm making that a thing. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I, yeah, I, I could say something right now. I'm just going to stop. Pork pro Biden. Um, and those situations, you know, if you just had one more person, it would massively increase your ability to get stuff done. Bottom line, you've got someone there to answer the phone. Yeah, or handle yeah, some you know, some consular client who's having a tough time and it 
escalates or out of the foyer or whatever. Like just so many unpredictable things happen every day. And yeah, being able to juggle all that, I think helps my ex-colleagues prove and deliver on their potential um, yeah. to the government. Yeah. In turn, probably makes for a more compelling argument as to why there should be more resources allocated to our um, foreign policy in the first yeah, place. Yeah, and according to the report, it does say that in terms of our diplomatic presence, Australia ranked 19th among the G20 nations and 20th out of 38 in the OECD. So we're not we're not sitting pretty high. No, are we? we're not. We're not top of the list. That's that's not a good thing. I don't. So think. Uh, how? What would be the perception then, if you if you're looking from from an, another country, because you know the network is kind of stretched to the point of ineffectiveness in some areas that the report found, yeah. and you know we're not ranked too high. Are we treated seriously? Are we taken seriously? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I mean, let me, let me share. An example with you, a lot of our missions around the world, they're not just accredited to the one host country, but to a bunch of countries around the region. In that region, that's the yeah. That's we've got in the region, right? And so, you know, a lot of the time, from the perspective of an Australian taxpayer, I, you can see why that would make sense. You don't have a lot going on in that corner of the world, and so one office should be able to just cover the whole kind of region and we move on with it. Mm. Yeah, but sometimes that changes. And I remember earlier in my career, I saw an example of that where the former Labor government had been voted in. So like Kevin 07 had happened and one of the things that then Prime Minister Rudd did was launch this bid for Australia to get elected to the UN Security Council. Yeah. And it was it was gonna be a massive uphill push because the two other competitors that were against Lithuania and uh, Lithuania was it? Mm-hmm. Finland and Luxembourg, I can't remember. Um, I think it was Lithuania. No, I think it was Finland and, and Lithuania. Yes, I think that's yeah. right. And one of my one of my colleagues will be tisk tisking me. I forgot. <laughs> this, but, um, oh, someone will tisk tisk me, but that's just my life. <laughs> uh, I think it might have been Luxembourg. Anyway, so they they had announced their candidacies ten years earlier, right? Mm. So imagine race ten years after your other two competitors already, you know, got their starting line, and so all of a sudden these countries that maybe weren't front and center for us and we didn't even have a a network representation in their capitals, all of a sudden we needed those countries to vote for us because in these situations, every single country at the UN General Assembly, 190-something countries, each one of their votes matters the same, whether you're Mm. you a a tiny island in the Pacific or one of the giants. Mm. And so I kind of saw that up close where I was posted to Mexico City and we were accredited to, I think, nine countries, right, like Cuba, Dominican Republic, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. For me, as a young diplomat, it made for a pretty steep learning curve, a pretty incredible experience crisscrossing all these countries that I've only ever you know, seen on a map. Yeah. Working with all my colleagues really hard to try and build some networks there and presence there and, and wow. try and win those votes. And in the end, amazingly, and I think to to the then Labor government's credit and to all my former colleagues at DFAT's credit, we ended up winning that election in, in the first round in September 2012. It was a huge coup. But I think those sort of situations, my sense of how crazy the world's getting, how fast things are developing, how volatile things are getting, we're going to find ourselves more and more in situations where we do have things at stake in seemingly far-flung corners of the world. Yes. And we're going to need to pick up the, the phone more and more to folks all around the world. And we're going to need to have those pre-existing relationships and that, that nuance and that context to understand who you call in the first place. It's bloody hard to do that when you're, you know, juggling nine different countries um, for a small team in, you know, in, in one capital city in the region. It just feels like spinning plates. And also, it is hard for a country to take you seriously when you don't even have a representative in their capital city. I mean, yeah. we can't have a see at every single country. I'm not saying that. 
But, you know, Michelle, you mentioned we're number 19 out of the G20 and number 20-something out of the OECD. I mean, there's a lot of room for us to expand our footprint um, and add depth to it, right? Get rid of these one-person posts and really try and get something done. Um, and I, th- I do think it's also imperative that we're we're seen to be taking this stuff seriously. I think for a, lo- a lot of the time, Australia kind of, it is a little laid back in the way we're perceived and we do rely a little a little more on, you know, our alliances as, as well as opposed to kind of forging our own path and yeah. saying we are here. Well, and I, I think I think we could do, I mean, we felt like we could do that, Michelle. Mm. And I think most most Western powers felt like we could get away with that because the Cold, Cold War had over, the, you know, yep. the, the free world had won. And there was this one massive superpower that was ruling the seas and, and enforcing this this peace and this um, prosperity around the world. Um, this, and I think history is side to show now that that was, that was a bubble, a brief unipolar moment we were yeah. in foreign policy circles. And that's the bubble that I've grown up in. I mean, I don't really remember much before mm. um, the Cold War fell. And, and, and I think I and a lot of Australians my age, a lot of folks around, around my age, will have got the, misimp- you know, the wrong impression that, that that state of being was inevitable, that it was natural, that it just, that that's, the, that's where the world defaults to this prosperity and stability of the world just kind of humming along. But we're seeing that really change. And I think we are coming to regret some of the decisions on both sides of government in Australia that said we don't really need to worry about having a foreign service. So we'll just, we'll just gut it, um, you know, sell embassies and not worry about it. I think. You were leading that. We saw that at Solomon Islands last year when they did that security pact with China. But I think, you know, there may be some more surprises in store. Who the heck knows? But yeah, um, yeah I, I, I think we'll see it was a mistake maybe to to shrug off some of those responsibilities. Now, on the volatility, and this is let's 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 let the rubber hit the road mm-hmm. here. We have seen an uptick in our intelligence capability overseas. I believe. But as a diplomat, how often did you sort of encounter not so much the Australian intelligence services and their activity over on foreign shores, but how often did you feel that you were under the scrutiny of the domestic intelligence service in the areas you were in? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, you know, I'm still kind of fresh out of detail. In fact, this is my first public engagement really since, um, since stepping up. Yep. And so I guess I'm still thinking through how to, and all these sorts of questions in the public domain. I mean, um, I don't want any details. None of that. Uh, we'll just have a drink later on, and we'll talk about that. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Essentially, did I, you ever? Did you, as a, a diplomat, feel that there were times where you felt you were under the scrutiny of a foreign intelligence service? Oh, yeah, there were times when I knew I was. Wow. Um, and there were there were times when I was warned about situation x happening yep. and and so i was like okay i'll prepare myself for situation x and then that exact thing happens because yeah the local intelligence service just has a a script that they just just you know, adhere to blindly so absolutely and you know we we don't just kind of get given a passport and a plane ticket and and sent off into the arse end of the world no. and say good luck i mean you, you get a lot of training in, in this sort of stuff and you get security clearances to make sure that you know you can handle. Your, you can actually. You're quali- your You are clear yeah. to read what you need to read and do. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So. So. I honestly, that's that's possibly one of the things I'll miss the most um, about leading detail, like that whole 
that whole world of being able to cloaking. read that shit. Yes, the same for oh, me right. when I left ASIO. I really miss the access. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that. Um, but just yeah, beyond that, I guess just just that whole you know Intel world. I mean, just that, that there is a world beyond the headlines yeah. of stuff happening through back channels and behind closed doors. And and I just I just found it fascinating. And I mean, as an Australian citizen, I leave my service in government feeling very comfortable and confident yeah. um, that that we as a democracy have good checks and balances in place, that there's good scrutiny on our ATEL servers, but also there's just really good, impressive people there doing amazing, important work, much of which will never see the light of day. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know, I, I feel like sometimes sometimes the Intel world gets a bit of rough treatment and, and folks make bold assumptions and, and think that there's I don't know, weird ass conspiracy theories going all the way. I mean, it's just, when, when, yeah, I don't know. I'd encourage people to <laughs> to put their hand up and get involved and, yeah. and see for themselves that these these are hardworking, decent people doing um, important work. And and ultimately, we without realizing it, we we have a lot to be thankful for. Yeah, I mean, I could talk to you for forever, but we'll start to wrap it up. Yes, I think so. I will say though. If people want more from you, I need, I found you on Twitter. Well, you found me. I think we found each other on yeah. Twitter. So <laughs> you're on Twitter. So we will link you in with our Twitter page at iSpied Podcast. At iSpied Podcast. We just like saying that. And you also have International Intrigue. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. International Intrigue is, is the, the one thing that lured me away from mm. my dream career, the job my dream of having since I was a kid at, as a Australian diplomat. In, International Tree was founded by two of my good buddies from DFAT, um, mm-hmm. and it is, to put very succinctly, it's a um, daily geopolitics newsletter, which um, is read by about 50,000 people. Um, wow. It's, 50,001 uh, now. That's something <laughs> else I can read. Do you do it as an audio book? I'm a really lazy <laughs> We We do have a podcast, which is called Intrigue Out Loud. Great. Um, yeah, read by 50,000 people. It was written by ex-diplomats like me, um, and it's free. So we are lying with it. Yeah, well, what you should put it on Substack. It makes some money off that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the idea is definitely to make money, um, yeah. but we're not, we're not charging people. Um, we, we're, yeah, it's I, so I can talk to you offline about how I think you could probably make some money. Yeah, I can that. talk to you about how we do this every week and we don't make much money. No, we don't make any money. <laughs> no, 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 we no. actually do it because, I don't know, why do we do it? <laughs> I was going to say because we like because each other. Our, because our spouses won't talk to us yeah, about exactly. this stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally, totally. Well, Jeremy, it was an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate you jumping on. It was. It's just great to kind of have, as you said, behind the veil, a, a little peek behind the veil of, yes, you know, a job that I don't think a lot of people really understand. Yeah, and it's it's an amazing job. I feel like you have done a day of it. And honestly, any folks listening who are thinking about a, a, a new career or a career change, I would totally suggest um, think about going into our forest overlay. We, we need more good people than ever. Yeah. And, there you and, go. Well, have you, have you been watching The Diplomat on Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> I, based on Twitter, I suspect I might be the one ex-diplomat in the world who has not watched a single oh, episode. I actually really, really liked it. But then I, what do I know? Yeah, what do you know? <laughs> I, from, I've heard good things from people I trust. So, yeah, Oh, okay. Sure. Well, there you go. That's that's yeah. good. Well, excellent. Thank you again, Jeremy, Thank you. for joining us. Thank you. And Pleasure. enjoy your socks <laughs> in Noosa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you, it was just so great having Jeremy on. Well, one of the things that now I never brought up, and I've got to bring mm. it up right now, mm. you know, he leaves the diplomatic service and suddenly the diplomatic service is in disarray. I mean, I mean the guy's join talented. The dots. Join the dots. Very smart man. Good to have him on. 
So good to have him on. It was just, it was just good to have someone discuss kind of like a portion of Australian government that I don't understand. It was also nice to talk to somebody who didn't object being bagged and left in a box for a week. Yeah, we need more of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my wife's not happy with me at all right now. Do you want to unbag her? Oh, I can do that. Yeah. Oh, 